I have fingers that just, and wrists that can't move. I have fat wrists. Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the Pepper Pod. Wherever and whenever you are listening, if you're walking the dog, uh, if you're a boy racer, hooning round the quiet roads thinking you can just do what you want now and that it's all your own racetrack, you're all welcome. Hello to you as well. Eddie, what's happening? Um, not a lot, really. Was that was that in reference to uh, what we saw at Walton Heath? I've just been watching that this morning. Oh, that was outrageous. Well, it, wasn't, it wasn't actually. We'll come to that in a minute. I but but I was out uh, last night for my perfectly legal within a safe distance of the house jog, and there were like about three or four low slung. I don't know how to describe them. You'd call them hot hatchbacks back in my day, but they weren't. They were sort of vans that had been modified with a. 50 quid kit from Halfords and they were just absolutely gunning it and I was reading that um, a lot more a lot more of these boy racer types he said sounding 83 years old a lot of these boy racer types are are thinking right the roads are quiet the police have got other things to do so I'm just getting it out there and gun it so uh, yes but Mm. let's talk Walton Heath and things like that that looked terrible didn't it yeah, it wasn't too good, was it? I was trying to work out which hole it was. At first, I thought it was the par three on the new course, I think the 10th, but actually it's the first, isn't it? It's mm. the first on the new course, I think. Yeah, short little par four. Um, nah, just just not on, really. Just disgraceful. So if you haven't seen this, it's a Walton Heath. I mean, I think it's about four guys on scrambling bikes just romping up and down the fairway. I think Ricky Fowler was one of them. <laughs> probably was one of them. So uh, he, he went off into the rough and then... Uh, did really good stuff on the bike on the greens in an orange outfit. Uh, it didn't look good. I mean, the serious point to this is that some golf courses are now being opened up to the public to exercise on or just to get some green space. And the sentiment behind that, you know, that's absolutely right and proper. But the problem is that some people are going to totally abuse it. So you had not only Walton Heath, um, I know Bishop Briggs Golf Club, just north of Glasgow, people, you know, playing football on the greens, uh, doing whatever to the bunkers. So, I mean, golf has this dreadful elitist image at times, but when some clubs make the, you know, the very decent and right move of opening their courses just so people have some green space to stretch their legs and walk around on the paths or on the fairways, you know, they're opening their land up for people to come in and enjoy it, and then it's abused. You do kind of, you do kind of despair. It's negative, negative start to the pod, but it is. Ah, oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's all I've got to say about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh dear yeah anyway sorry so yes society breaking down and so therefore anything goes anyway I'm sure it'll be fine we'll all be out of this soon and by soon we mean November but I'm fine uh, I've been injecting debt all daily so uh, top of the world um, I've gone blind we'll shortly be heading for massive kidney failure but uh, my insides are clean how's your weight loss because uh, you posted a picture and I, then I looked at the the comments below, and everyone said, "Cool, lost a few pounds there, Eddie. Eddie, my old son. Um, yeah. How much have you lost? Well, I don't actually know, but, um, well, I haven't weighed myself since the beginning of lockdown, but I don't think I've lost a great deal since being in lockdown. But I know at the start of the year I was like 85 kilos, and when I last weighed myself I was like 78 kilos. So um, uh, I've lost a good six or seven kilos, yeah, at least, yeah. That's not quite much, 80 kilos or whatever. I mean, you are only four foot six, so it is actually quite well, a lot. On the European Tour website, as you might expect, I lie in my biography. So on the Gosh. European Tour, I think it's got me at like six foot and 14 stone, which <laughs> I was taking. I've never been 14 stone, even when I've looked my heaviest. I've never been quite as heavy as that. But, um, or indeed six to, foot. Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's uh, it's all a lie. So, uh, But the diet's going really very... I mean, I didn't put it on to get a ton of feedback about it. Like, you know, there was a couple of reasons why I put it on. I mean, one of the reasons was, oh, look, I think I look quite well. So there you you go, You do look well. Um, And that was part of the reason why I wanted to put it on, you know, is to say, listen, I'm just eating... fatty cuts of meat and bone broth and look look at my lovely face so why not give it a try look at my lovely happy <laughs> face but i don't I, I i know we've talked about this but i don't know why i didn't ask you this what is wrong with throwing a few garden peas in there what, what, what possible damage could they do to you and they'd add to the flavor experience of it all well would they though um see i've never been a fan of vegetables but um mm. no the idea is that you just eliminate everything uh, apart from really fatty cuts of animal food and uh, and bone broth and liver and stuff like this and then it just gives you a whole gut 
uh, a reset and then you can slowly begin to add back in so we will and Jen is already but um you know actually I feel I feel great without anything else so uh at yeah. the moment I don't see the need has she broken from the the strict carnival, carnival diet? Yeah, not not really. She has like a few blueberries here and there. I might have a few nuts here and there. So I'm not, you know, and I'm drinking coffee and I'm still eating some dark chocolate. So it's not like we're being terribly strict. But um, you know, mm. we uh, we're, yeah. we're doing a pretty good job, and I'm feeling pretty good for it. So uh, you know, yeah. Could you eat a stem of broccoli if a cow had grazed against it, for example? Would that make it qualify? Mm. That'd be interesting. Maybe rub it in some fresh milk. Um, yeah. Listen, you look well, anyway. Um, little smiling face in that photo. Um, who doesn't look well? Brooks Kepka doesn't look well, um, yeah. only because of his his haircut. That uh, what's his partner called? Jenna. Jenna. Is it? So she Jenna has Sims, had to. Yeah, because yeah, these are full name Joan Sims. He is going out with Joan Sims again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Charles Hawtrey last week and uh, Joan Sims this week. Right. So he's had his haircut by Jenna. And it's it doesn't. I mean, it didn't really look good. How are you coping on that? Because you've got very full hair, so that's going to take some managing. I'm just growing it. I'm using this opportunity to grow it to a length that I've never quite grown it to before. So, um, in my eyes, I'm I'm kind of picturing Fleetwood. Jamie Lannister. Although I'll look a lot more like Brian of Tarth, I'm sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to see where it goes. Really. Uh, yes, you'll look. It, like... The thing is, with my hair, I have the thickest head of hair i mean when i go to the uh, really? hairdresser you know he always just yeah well i know there's lots of people like you unfortunately out there who who suffer on this front but i'm quite the opposite mm. and um it, it's like chicken wire you know he gets those my favorite scissors are like the ones that have the um well they, they have like for every i suppose scissor stem there's only two does that make or one does that make sense that yeah, doesn't they, make any are sense they, are they the, pinking the, the shears thinning. shearing yeah the shearing that have yeah. little teeth on them yeah that's right the shearing scissors i love and he just goes through my head head of hair like you wouldn't believe with them it's just brilliant yeah. um yeah good enjoying this chat as well ken brown coming up uh, shortly in the podcast we've been talking to ken and we will be talking all things not not here though although he has got still a very full head of hair so there we are one of the good sides of social media as we talk about the bad with brooks kepka's uh, haircut and indeed moustache for brooks kepka look it up um one of the very good sides what what was that portrait like of gus and pip that was sent to you that was a thing of beauty it was, yeah. I I think I received a message from you, and I thought, what what's this? And then I went on Twitter and saw it, and it was so out of the blue. Um, you know, we hadn't asked for it or anything, but um, mm. wow! And they're sending it me. So uh, the Repton yeah, Design Company, if you want to look them up, because uh, you know they'll be looking for all sorts of work, as we all are in this day and age. So uh, it was a, it was just a beautiful, I want to say, painting of, yeah. of Gus and Pip. Very accurate. Yeah. How did how did how did um, how does she do it? Has she been stalking you and taking photos through a telephoto lens of Gus and Pip or just do it from she, that? Well, I think it's from all the photos I've put on Twitter, to be fair, or Instagram. Mm-hmm. She did say that she loved the dogs and, uh, you know, we, um, yeah, they've been fairly photogenic recently. Jen took one of them in the kitchen. I took one of Pip yesterday, actually, I sat out in the sun. Pip's just so funny. She, She's more human-like than Gus in many mm-hmm. ways and, uh, you know, what it's like with your two famous dogs. How are the dogs? How are the lovely they're, yeah, they're very well. They are, Olive and Mabel are, are awesome. And um, yep, just doing all sorts of dog things. Again, thinking this is the greatest thing in the world, that we're all at home and they go for walks and everything's tremendous. And they don't know that they are being laughed at. Um, other social media stuff. Do you see Sergio Garcia? So this is these are trends that go around. So there's something on TikTok the, with a song I Just Flipped the Switch by Drake who I'm not really aware of where people dance and then they switch clothes or whatever so Sergio Garcia's done this with his wife Angela and daughter Azalea and so they're dancing away which in itself is uh, horrendous enough but then Sergio flips the light switch and boom he's suddenly dancing in Angela's dress uh, it's it's extraordinary but you know people are just doing whatever they have to do to get through yeah I saw it and I, I like it I like it because I, I really like Sergio but I I think there's a piece of me. I know that Eric Van Royen did it a couple of weeks ago with his wife and they did a fantastic job. And it was a, I don't know, there was just a little less awkward. I felt with Sergio, there was an element of awkwardness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so I kind of yeah. wanted to love it because it's Sergio, but just couldn't quite love it. But mm. um, the thing is with those ideas, you, if you're not the first to do it, mm, do you want to do it? That's the mm. question you've got to ask yourself. I mean, I was asked to do something for Titleist and when I thought about doing it, I'd seen that there was like eight other golfers that had done it. So I figured, 
Right now, so I didn't do it. So I'm, I'm out of a contract. Yeah, all. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. All art is theft. Uh, Eric Van Royen. So uh, I've been asked to do this. Uh, I don't know if it's a secret or not. No, they want publicity for it. So this match, not the match, which we'll talk about in a minute. Tiger Woods against Phil Mickelson, match number two. Uh, it's a match between Eric Van Royen and your favourite French player of all time. Michel Lorenzo Vera. Yes, exactly, Mikey. Uh, and so they're going to play each other over the internet using Trackman stats, etc. They're going to play St Andrews. Um, I'm going to be doing some commentary on it, and it's all for all for charity. And oh, wow. uh, so I, don't, I think that's going to be happening about May the 9th. So, you know, people are getting excited about Tiger against Phil. Um, but people are getting even more excited about the match that everyone's everyone's wanted to see for a long time, Eric Van Royen against Mike Lorenzo Vera. So uh, when are those two going to get together, people were saying. Well, it's going to happen. So there we are. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, what other news? Ian Finnis. Ian Finnis. Uh, we talked about this before, where he was raising money for the caddies through his auction of all sorts of golfing items. Well, that's now £125,000 for... Out of work caddies, etc. I mean, the items were good, weren't they? Did you see? Did you see what he was selling off and things like that? I, I actually had a look through this morning, and two. I mean, listen, Rory's winning bag at the FedEx yeah. to me is such an a such a fantastic prize to win. Um, but my, you know, I, I think we need to really listen. Winners are great, and I'm sure they're all delighted. But I do feel a little sorry for Tricia Whelan, who was uh, won the prize to caddy for Thomas Bjorn at the Wentworth Pro Am. You know, of all the prizes on there to have won, oh, that would that would that you know that wouldn't be right up there for me. But um, you know, she'll have a good day, I suppose, in some ways. But uh, what a fantastic amount! And I know all the caddies are going to get roughly around a thousand pounds each from that. So um, you I mean, know, that's just yeah, that, that, is, that is an impressive effort. Well done, Finno. Um, right, and uh, good luck to Trisha with Thomas Bjorn. Uh, at Wentworth in, in September, which we hope will be going ahead, as we will the Ryder Cup, obviously. Um, news on the Solheim Cup that they have said that if the Ryder Cup didn't happen this year and it went forward to next year, that the Solheim Cup would not then be bumped to 2022, which which did happen back in 2001 too, when the Ryder Cup moved, the Solheim Cup moved into the uh, odd years. But they say LPGA Commissioner Mike Wan, who's a very impressive individual, said nothing now drowns out a Solheim Cup, so it's going to stand alone and is it would take place if if the Ryder Cup were moved two or three weeks apart. So And Katrina Matthew, um, Europe's captain, has said that, you know, that would actually be quite a good thing because you've got these two great contests happening and they could sort of feed off, off one another. So there we are. Um, other news, sporting bodies uh, seem to be moving more and more towards sport behind closed doors. You know, we, we sort of mock the idea a little bit. This is sport essentially just for TV. But the Premier League, I know they're talking about getting back going in, in sort of June time with behind closed doors games. Formula One have been uh, mentioning that today. So what do you think, Edward? I was um, watching the Sky Arts programme uh, a few days ago and Dire Straits were on. Okay, and I mean, what a great band! And I was watching it, and I was, you know, tapping my feet along to the songs. Just, and I thought to myself, what would it feel like if I stopped tapping my feet? So I stopped tapping my feet and just listened to the music, and it felt really, really strange. And, and then I thought to myself, that's what a Ryder Cup would feel like without fans. You know, it's such a great event, but to me, you have to have fans. If you if you take away the noise at a Ryder Cup, you strip it of its soul, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I kind of just, I wanted to get that metaphor in there because in my mind, at least, it was quite beautiful. And Dire Straits, what a band, by the way. Um, thought I'd get into them this week, discover them. Telegraph Road, um, brilliant. Uh, Every Other Street, I think that's a, a song I love as well. Mm. You must like Dire Straits, Andrew. Do you like them? I Tell do, some do. of that, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, I do some of the stuff, yeah. Not Floor. Uh, Knopfler <laughs> Knopfler great guy what a guitarist um, was it Buddy Guy influenced him or is that someone else I'm thinking of anyway great picking style yeah no uh, yeah very good a lot of the stuff veered towards the middle of the road but uh, no very 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 they, good band are they so British? yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Knopfler's a man from the north east and fam- family Scottish uh, in fact I think did he grow up mm. in Scotland anyway very connected to the north east that's why they play uh, Local Hero which was mm. the theme song to the film Local Hero wonderful film Burt Lancaster uh, oh, oh, Olive's, oh Olive's awake um, uh, so they play Local Hero uh, at St James's Park whenever Newcastle come out um, 
Yes, there we are. Anyway, so we have endorsed Dire Straits. Check them out if you haven't heard of Dire Straits. Get into them. Uh, Tiger and Phil, a rematch of the match, is going to be happening late May. Funds raised for this one to benefit COVID-19 charities, so it's not quite the same as the first match where... I don't even I, can, I don't even know who won the first match. I know it went down to a little pitch-off. Who won it and won all Phil. the cash? Did he? Right, OK. Uh, so this will be Mickelson and Tom Brady against Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning, so two great quarterbacks, I want to say, um, <laughs> playing with Mickelson and Tiger Woods. Are you excited about... About the the match well, the, too. The thing that was really great about the first match is that <clears throat> Phil won nine million dollars, which meant nothing to him and nothing to us. Mm. So it was like what a what an event, you know. At least the money's going to go to charity this time round. Uh, I, I, yeah, listen, I I'm, I have I can't tell you what I'd rather do um, than yeah. watch it, but you know, there's a number of options and none of them are that pretty. But uh, no, I, I'm really not into it at all. But hey, it is what it is, you know. People are going to lap it up seemingly. Some people might. Um, but I'm, I am actually more interested in listening to you commentate over Michelle and uh, Eric um, yeah. at St. Andrews. Uh, to be honest, I think that would have far more uh, yeah. entertainment and charisma involved. Well, yes. Uh, uh, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Not necessarily from me, but from those two characters. The match, the the match two, if you want to watch that, get into it, folks. It is at least some golf happening and is going to be happening, taking place towards the end of May sometimes. Right, it is time to hear from our special guest today, and he is very special. He is uh, was a great golfer, he's a great commentator, a colleague, a chum. He is Ken Brown. <laughs> So Ken Brown, the one and only Ken, how has your lockdown experience been so far? Uh, a bit disappointing, you know, not being able to go to the Masters was a real disappointment. But overall, we're managing, I'm fiddling around doing bits and pieces at home and quite enjoying the, the time at home because I think it's the first time in my life that I've had kind of more than a month at home at one time. So it's nice to see the spring flowers coming out. Been a lovely, a lovely week or so. So it's been okay, but I understand lots of people are struggling. It's, it's no, it's no fun for any of us. Actually, Eddie and I were talking about this. That you know, um, I was going to say fewer cars. There seem to be more getting out on the roads now. But you're a real wildlife man. So are you appreciating the, the sound of uh, birdsong and uh, the butterflies being out? It's been fantastic. Uh, you know, where I live around here, you can often hear the trains and the airplanes fly over from Luton, and haven't hardly heard a plane or a train. As you say, you can suddenly. Hear the birds singing. Lots of butterflies around. It's been a great couple of weeks with butterflies, brimstones, and orange tips and small whites. The whole lot are out. In fact, my little apple tree in the garden—you can almost hear it buzzing with the bees on it. So it's been—it's been nice. It's been relaxing. Mm. I see. I mean, you—you—you you do use social media as well. So you've got an Instagram account, Ken, on the course, and your your own Twitter account as well. You, uh, there was a, a photo which was put up. Um, I think Paul Eels might have put it up originally. But uh, uh, that what an England boys team that was. When was that? 73, 74, you and Nick Faldo and Sandy Lyle in there? It was Hoy Lake. We played at the Hoy Lake, the, 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 the boys international and the, the boys, in, uh, boys championship the week after. Yeah, that was quite a team as it happens. Sandy was the England captain and uh, Nick Faldo played. Actually, Nick was quite lucky to make the team. He was He'd only taken the game up a couple of years earlier and he was just about good enough to make the side and I played in it as well so yeah it was a it was a, a funny enough in those days we hardly ever got all the, all the good boys together I know Eddie would have played a lot of boys golf together but we hardly mingled there weren't many competitions and it was a different way altogether so it was an opportunity to see how the best boys played yeah and you and uh, as you said um, Nick was a sort of later starter Sandy was the prodigy wasn't he really he was a uh, you know outstanding talent as a youngster Sandy was just a head and shoulders above all of us. So there's another, there was a Scottish lad called David Robertson who was also a fantastic player. But oh yes, Sa Sandy was Sandy was the star of the show. I mean, if you saw him hit, then I was a little skinny lad who could get out there about 200 yards with a good one. And Sandy was he could hit an iron pasture. He was a really strong. And those had a very very slow backswing and absolutely crunched it. And, and he's been a lifelong friend, and uh, what a player, eh? What a player. At his best, I don't think there's anybody better, certainly from Europe. No, I, I mentioned David Robertson there. There's another story for another day, perhaps. But your family, <laughs> like Sandy, you know, Anglo-Scots, but your family is from the uh, from the Scottish borders, really, originally. Yeah, which is, uh, I used to go on holidays in Scotland uh, when I was about uh, six, seven or eight, and uh, stayed with my grandfather. They lived uh, at a place called Johnston Bridge, which is on the, was on the A74, the M74, now just north of Lockerbie. That's where I first played golf. I chipped the ball in his garden. I would have been six or seven. I used to spend the whole of the, the summer holidays there. 
we had a farm and it was a fantastic time for a youngster and we picked up the eggs and did all the bits and pieces to and he had a lovely river there which gave me my first uh, chance to do some fishing for trout so they were golden days there was lovely summer summers and summers and we'd, we'd uh, have a lovely time it was superb actually that's that's probably your real passion isn't it fishing whenever whenever you're away on holiday if you, if we ever get to go on holidays again that's where you'll <laughs> be back in the river somewhere yeah i've it came from those holidays i love the outside i love the, the wildlife animals being out there and, and fishing has been a passion of mine for a long long while i don't get that many chances but I'll, you know this time of year we've for the last 20 years, I go with a friend, Ian McKenzie, my friend, and uh, we go to down to Devon and stay at the Arundel Arms and do a week's fishing, of trout fishing. They're my full stops in my you know, my life. You know, I, I'm rushing around and some time at home. But going fishing is a week where all you worry about is this little bit of fluff floating towards you and hope you're going to catch a fish. And it's a bit like golf. It takes a lot of concentration and a reasonable amount of skill. But it's, it's where you get away from everything. It's just the birds singing, watching the river. And you're focusing on a very small point on the river. And, you catch your little brown trout and chuck it back. I, I, I just, feel that I'm talking. Sorry, Ken, uh, Eddie, go on. Oh, well, I was just to bring it back to um, David Robertson because I uh, thought, I'm sure I've met that guy. So I Googled him. And I've just read in the Herald Scotland from a few years ago that he was done for cheating. Did you know anything about this, Ken? <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's a long, it's a, well, it's quite a short story. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, he was, uh, uh, his dad was a butcher and he sort of drove his son too hard and he tried and he tried and he did a bit of, dodgy dealing on the on the course and eventually uh, he was chucked out of it which was a real shame because he had a lot of talent he was a beautiful player and uh, the game got the better of him which was it was rather sad mm. I, I knew that Eddie would steer it back towards that once, <laughs> once I gave him that tease of the mention of it um, actually I feel I'm talking to two kindred spirits here as, a, as two mavericks because back in the day I was listening to an American golf podcast a couple of months ago and they were reliving um, the Ryder Cup at the Greenbrier and they were going through everything that happened there and then they said they said oh and Ken, Ken Brown and Mark James um, you know were, were seen as the bad boys of the European tour and 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 one of the uh, presenters of this podcast said what Ken Brown the guy from Brownie Points and they could not <laughs> equate the modern Ken Brown with the Ken Brown the player back in the 70s do you do you remember that that player, that person, those times? I, I remember him quite well. Yeah, yeah. I think there was there was there was there's a, there's a, there's a competitive person, and there's the person, the real person. And I was always sort of striving hard to get. You know, I was I wasn't a great player, so I was fighting to claw my way into playing the game as best I could. And I was a straight talker, like idiots. If someone asked me a question, I gave the answer. It, it, it wasn't often a wise answer. But in those days, when there were a dozen media newspaper people writing. It was gold dust for them. So if they were sure of a story, go and speak to Mark James or Ken Brown. They're bound to come up with something. <laughs> and we, we were always a full house. There was no doubt we came up with something, which gave you a reputation. You know, people would finish a program round and they'd say, Ken, I really enjoyed it with it. As if to say playing with Ken Brown was going to be some sort of nightmare. Oh, yeah, we had a lovely time. Uh, so it, it sort, of, sort of evolved. Uh, I, I, I sort of regret doing it now, but at the time, it, you know, let's just go for what the heck. Yeah, and the beauty of golf, which is what I love, which is the greatest thing about golf, is you control your own destiny. It's the, mm. one of the very few things, uh, sporting things, that, or in life, you can. If I shoot sixty-eight, uh, you know that's that's a, that's a winner. It reminds me a little bit of uh, John McEnroe. You know, I, uh, me being me at my age, I really had no idea what John McEnroe ever did or didn't achieve. All I knew is that he was just a nut nutcase, and. And so, but then I watch him at Wimbledon commentate, and I read his book, and it's one of the still one of the greatest sporting books I've read, and he's just fantastic to listen to. And I think, you know, a bit like yourself, Ken, you you almost grow into a your personality grows, isn't it? I guess over time, and you become such a great uh, commentator, or, or what you give back to the game ultimately is is so worthwhile. And I see it a bit with Joey Barton actually in football. Now, it might be a bit more of a controversial statement, but having met him as well. You know, you see some of the stuff they do when they're young, you think, oh, but actually as they grow, if they're allowed to grow with that character, they become invaluable in terms of what they give back, I often think. Yeah, I, I, well, everyone's personality, as you know, everyone's personality is slightly different. And if you're honest, I mean, as I say, if you're honest, sometimes it puts you in deep water, but if you're honest with people, particularly if you're on TV, the most amazing thing about TV, it absolutely reveals your character over a period of time. You can't hide it. You know, if you're a bit of Jack the Lad, you'll come out as Jack the Lad if you're a quietly spoken person. So the TV exposes your character for exactly who you are, and there's not much you can do camouflage about it. But being honest with people, 
kind of saying it straight, has, you know, has a, despite the fact it might annoy someone, yeah, is, is, a, is, a, is a really good attribute. So with, with that in mind then, Ken, what is it about ducks? <laughs> <laughs> All those bits and pieces came, come around from uh, evolving my Ken on the course bits. That's, they come around when I'm thinking of some way of showing something visually that uh, will enter, maybe entertain people, and ducks came up. I decided to get a big duck uh, originally for the, for, so I could sail it down this Wilkin Burn. I thought with the idea of sailing it out to the sea, which we sort of did. So it was a way of, it was a way of demonstrating where the Swilkin Burn went. So that's how ducks originally came. I mean, uh, we're going to come on to broadcasting and uh, Ken on the course and all that, but I just want to talk, because you're quite modest, we've heard it on this interview already, about your own playing talents. But uh, four European Tour wins, the Irish Open in 78, beating Seve and, and the, the recently gone John O'Leary by, by a shot. Was that your favourite win? It probably was. I mean, winning in America after trying so hard mm. for so long, and you know, I went around the world so many times to try and establish myself on the PGA Tour. It was difficult. You know, it wasn't. We weren't. When you went on the airplane, you didn't turn left. You turned right, and you kept walking right back to row sixty and sat with it. People smoking on Pan Am. It was not. It was a lot of hard work to win in America. But winning the Irish Open was unbelievable because it was Port Marnock, Dublin, twenty thousand people there. Seve was there, and in the end, it became between me and John O'Leary. There must have been twenty thousand people around the 18th. So that was a, that was a, an amazing win. And I've got just a couple of stories. I mean, I putted unbelievably. It was impossibly well. I think I single putted the last eight greens. But what happened was Seve posted his 65. So we had nine holes left to play, John and I, and we knew the tiger we had to beat which I, both of us had a chance. And I know Seve was sitting in the uh, locker room with Dave Musgrove, thinking, well, these, these two aren't going to beat us. There's going to be a playoff here. And I, you know, I got an amazing up and down on the 18th to win it. So yeah, he came up to me after he said, I thought we were going to be head-to-head there, buddy. But yeah, he was just too good for me this week. It was about the only time in my life I was just too good for him. <laughs> Yeah, but you mentioned the PGA Tour win. I mean, how many players at that time, as you say, even played, Europeans played on the PGA Tour, but winning a seven-shot win as well in the Southern Open in 1987 ahead of Larry Mize and, and, and David Frost. Was that, and was that, that was just after the, the Ryder Cup at Muirfield yeah. Village. It came the week after, yeah. Uh, we, we won at uh, Muirfield Village. I, 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 uh, it was a funny week. There's a story to be told every week. But, uh, I sort of gave up my playing pace because Sandy came, I played with Bernard in the foursomes, I think it was the first day. And I always played foursomes because I was quite steady and didn't make lots of birdies, but didn't make, make that many mistakes. And uh, Lang in the afternoon played with Sandy. So they played well and won. I think Bernard and I lost. And Sandy came up to me after that. He said, Ken, uh, I'm playing some really good golf at the moment. Uh, and I'd like to have a chance to play with Bernard tomorrow in the, in the foursomes. So he just spoke to me and I, so I went to Tony and said, this is what Sandy said to me. You know, I, I, I'd like, to, I'd love to play, but if, if Sandy says he's playing well, it's, you know, it's up to you whether you want Sandy to play. So Sandy played the next two days in his two matches and won their matches. And of course, the team were playing fantastically well. So anyway, once I left Muirfield, I, I played two matches and lost two matches. So I was, I was seeing you absolute herbs. I was actually quite cross with myself, despite we'd won the match. So I, I went to uh, Columbus, Georgia, to play the, uh, the Southern Open in a. In a a happy but cross state of mind. Anyway, I played some unbelievable golf that week. You know, the game, my short game was superb. I managed to win there. So that, that but for me, when I look back, it was one of the it was one of the highlights of my playing career. To spend five years trying to get there and actually managing to do it. When you look at the the, the career and the you know the European Tour wins and the PGA Tour winning five five Ryder Cups. You actually stepped away from playing golf reasonably young, what, 35 or so in, yeah, in 92? And was that just uh, just a bit disillusioned with the playing side of things? Well, ultimately, you lose, slightly lose, lose your desire. And if you're on the, on the run, the cusp of being competitive or not, at whatever level, if you lose that slight bit of desire, ultimately that's what happens. But there were, there were a number of factors. I've got a sore wrist which has stopped me practicing as much as I, I, well, I felt I had to. I'm not sure I did have to, but at the time I certainly did. I'd got a young family. Uh, there was a few other things came into my life, and I was 100%, you know, no one could have made more effort. It, it was a 24-hour day, seven days a week job for me. It, you know, I never got away from it. I'm not, it was, I loved it from the bottom of my heart, but it was not something that uh, I did half-baked, and I couldn't see myself 
being competitive, doing just slightly halfway. I, I'm sure I could have done, but I just couldn't. My, my mind didn't allow me to do that. So, yeah. I, so I sort of stepped away from the game. Is that is that bird song in your garden or Eddie or Eddie's garden? I, mean, I quite like it. It's soothing. I can assure you, it's not my garden. No, it's not your garden because Pip's killed all the birds in your garden. <laughs> exactly. Probably. Exactly, what is that? Yeah. You you can identify the birds for us. Uh, I, can't, I can't hear it. Sorry, I can't hear it. All oh, right, okay. Maybe. We actually <laughs> in my in my head it's happening. <laughs> we we've actually identified a bird's nest in our uh, outside our front door. We had to try and find the meter the other day. There you go. Try and find it, and we did eventually. But in the during trying to find it, we found a bird's nest in this cupboard, um, and actually they've just hatched. So, um, if anyone's got any advice, Ken, if you've got any advice as to what to do on that front, then it'd be greatly right. appreciated. Just, just try not to disturb them. That's the other okay. thing. It's probably robins. I mean, they they make a nest in any little crevice. Mm. We've got quite mm. a lot of blackbirds bouncing around. They're, they're quite confident wee things, blackbirds. Um, so this is bird chat with Ken. I, and <laughs> actually, I have a question regarding Ken. I read that you were self-taught, which was news to me. So I wondered, when you had a bad run out on tour, so you had two or three weeks missing the cut or just struggling, what did you do to turn that around? Bad run, as you know, as a professional golfer, you, in fact, you wrote a lovely bit about, I can't remember exactly what you said, how you sort of, you've got to manage your faults. That's, that's, that's the name of the game, really, because you probably won't ever completely cure them. So I'd always go back and I had the same ball position slightly, often a bit too quick from the top of the swing. So if you went back to the absolute basics, these are the things that found your timing. Uh, and in our game, with the equipment we had, timing was more critical than the modern game because uh, the equipment wasn't quite as predictable. So you had to go back to your absolute fundamentals. And that's what I did. Uh, you know, I learned by copying. And I, don't get me wrong, occasionally someone will look and say, you know, you've got a bit flat or a bit too quick. But I always went back to the... Yeah, the absolute basics and work from there, which is the, you know the, really the, the idea of my putting book. If you get the basics right and you know they're right, your putting will come back a bit better. Well, what about you? Well, I think in this day and age, with the you know coaching and cameras and all these te- all this technological stuff, you can you can diagnose your faults quicker. And then, you know, if you're smart and you use that technology wisely, obviously you can then come back quicker. But I was just curious because especially when I saw you as self-taught and interesting, you mentioned the word timing. That is something that the more old swings I watch, the more people I listen to like yourself who, you know, played 30, 40 years ago, that seemed to be the, the focus and that was the focal point. And, and I often think of myself, you know, if you can feel the difference in timing and rhythm, I often think of it more in sequence, actually, um, when things are good and bad, but uh, it's interesting. I saw a picture of Payne Stewart the other day looking like he was warming up with what looked like a baseball bat, and I thought you would have seen much more of this type of stuff in years gone by. Uh, so it was interesting to hear you say timing. Yeah, it, yeah it is. Uh, I mean, when you look at Faldo playing, who was one of the best of his time, you know, his era, if he played with a swing he used then now, he wouldn't be competitive. There's no club in speed there. It's just this kind of steer. The same with Hogan. You see Hogan swinging. I've seen a few pictures of Hogan swinging. And Nicholas commentated. In those days, it was about control. You had to control the distance and control it. Rather, now it's much more about, I'm not saying you don't have to have control, but the ability to be able to control the ball is far easier than it was then for the equipment reasons, really, ball and uh, clubs. When you stopped playing in 92, the, the move into broadcasting came about quite quickly, didn't it? Sky was just really starting up and they got... What, did they, they got the American golf rights, the PGA Tour rights, and, and it right, came about yeah. quite easily, for, quite quickly for you? Well, I kind of half-stopped about in 91, somewhere around there, I can't remember exactly. I do remember my first tournament was the Irish Open, my first win was the Irish Open, my last tournament was the Irish Open. But, and I did have a spell, it was one of the hardest times of my life, not, not necessarily of worry I hadn't got a job, which I hadn't, I had two young kids and no job. Uh, it was more of stepping away from it. I felt you, you know, weak, you pathetic man for giving up all those things you tried so hard. And for, for about six, eight months, I found it quite hard to look at my colleagues. Because uh, in my back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, they're thinking that he's given up that fellow. That's a bit of a shame. So there, there was that uh, aspect. And I did have a spell. I was doing a bit of course design stuff. But I, that's where I, the direction I'd like to have gone into. But I, I didn't get the chance. And then John Davis at Sky was just starting, they signed up the American Golf and uh, I got my break there. David Livingston and I did the first golfs and uh, then they went from that later on, 93, they, they started doing the European tour stuff and I was on courses, which is where I really came into my own. So it did, it came round 
I mean, I look back and think, how lucky was that? I mean, You're kind of thrown just... in at the deep end as well in terms of broadcasting. Oh, oh I've done it. Yeah, it was it was all new stuff. You know, the uh, first time we went outside Britain, BBC did all the British tournaments, but they, apart from the Masters, where they took someone else's coverage all the US Open. You know, no one had done broadcasting. We went to the Cannes Open in France. It was brand new, and IMG put it all together. It was there were really exciting times, but you know, technically it wasn't so so clever. And because there was only, in fact, that week there was only two of us. One on the course, and you and Murray in the box. We grew to three with three commentators. The on course is not saying much, but you know you're on for four hours or whatever it was. The on course, I had to start doing some more, carry some more burden. So I was the first person to do on course in the short game. You know, commentate on putts and chips, which had never been done before. And you know, commentating on a two foot putt it takes a bit of skill because there's not much to say. <laughs> You know, you know so, so we we kind of changed the the, the balance of how the on course became much more of an integral part of the commentary. And when did the when did the uh, big transfer happen um, to the BBC? I think I know the answer to this, but uh, how how did it come about as well? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting story as well. But uh, Steve Ryder came up to me at the Scottish Open one year, a year before or so and said, "Would you be interested in working at the BBC?" Uh, so I said, yeah, I would be. I'm quite happy at Sky. And eventually uh, uh, I got asked by the BBC to, to do their golf. So I, you know, I, it was a big decision to leave because I knew Sky were here to, you know, here to stay and I had a good, really good job and I had a fantastic time. But I thought it was, a, it was another opportunity. But as I say, they offered me a, you know, a year's deal. If that had finished right there, that would have been the end of that. I'd have been struggling to go back to Sky. So but I don't, you know, it was fantastic. Peter Radisson, Alex Hay and... Steve Ryder, they yeah. gold golden days. I mean, it's uh, it's worth reminding, and again, you know, it's been much talked about in recent years. But the BBC did a lot of live events there and did um, did golf properly. Yeah, well, in one year I did twelve. Peter Addis told me did sixteen one year. So I mean, we used to do a lot of golf, most of them from the British tournaments. But we do the amateur championship, the boys championship there, and those were great fun to do. Mm. And you'd see the youngsters that were coming up, so I'd know all the. The young lads coming through when they came through. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's a shame what's happened with the BBC's golf, but uh, it's you know money and all the other bits and pieces that go with it. Yeah. Any any favourite uh, moments from from commentary? I, I I do remember you talking about. I mean, it sounds a bizarre commentary team to be out on a course together, but you and Seve commentating in the was that the world match play it went well? World match play. Yeah, he, Seve did it. He came to us. He did the Masters for a couple of years. He sat in the commentary box. At the Masters uh, with us, which was very exciting because he genuinely got <laughs> genuinely got excited about it all and tap you on the shoulder and have something to say. But what an experience! What a, you know how, how wonderful it was. And then uh, I suggested to Paul Davis, who was in charge, then why don't we ask Sebi if we come and do the World Match Play with us, which he did. And uh, for the final, he came out of the course. The final was between Ernie and Lee Westwood. I'm telling you, Sebi was more popular than uh, bits and pieces. And we used to. I said, come on, we'll go ahead. I do remember. Come on, we'll go ahead. Because there's only one match on the course, so you could film stuff. as they were, If they were on the, you know, the 12th green, you could film something on the 13th tee. So we'd go out and you'd hit a putt or something. And one of us would hold it and there'd be a big cheer. And if it's a big cheer for seven, and of course, they're, they're trying to putt on the previous green. So, yeah, and, and he, it, he was really, really, really loved. It. And he was in his element there because he hadn't got the worry of playing or the thing. And people came, his grannies and old people would come up and pat him on the back and... One of the cameramen had given us a pair of a sort of clown's glasses and I, I had them in my pocket. I was just waiting for the opportunity to say, have you tried these? And they tried them on. And he's got a lovely picture of us together with this big smile on his face. He was a great man and such an enthusiast and such a lover of golf. And he was just an Adonis on the golf course. Yeah. Wondering where we made the scrap. <laughs> I think one of the most um, moving pieces of television you'll see in, in sports broadcasting with that was when you went out to Pedrena to film with him, and it was it was fairly near the end of things. And that must have been quite uh, emotional, moving to make as much as anything else, because he was a friend. Oh, it was a, such a tough day, Andrew. I can't tell you. Flew out on, on, on EasyJet. It's actually an amazing story. Flew out on EasyJet from Luton. Raph and Adele got on the flight the day before he'd won the Wimbledon. And uh, I sat in my seat. I was in the extra leg room somewhere, seat, row 13. On the, on, the, on the aisle, this Spanish chap came out and said, so I'm sitting in the middle seat. I said, get well, okay. So I got out of the way for him to sit down. He wouldn't sit down. So I said, come on, sit down. I said, I'm getting everyone's way. Two up came raffing her down. He sat by the window and his manager sat next to him. And I was there and I thought, I'm going to see Sevi. I'll get, I'll ask raffing her down. 
if you, if you would mind to write a little note for Siri. So uh, his manager said, I don't speak very good English, so I had to ask. Anyway, eventually he did, and he got a piece of paper. I'll tell you, it wasn't much smaller than an A4 size, and filled it up with writing. He sat the whole flight writing this message for Seve in Spanish. We did the interview, and Seve was... Uh, it was an interesting interview, because it wasn't sure it was going to go ahead. And as you know, Andrew, if you're doing an interview, you don't know whether it's going to last a minute, five minutes, 15 minutes, or whatever. You plan your questions accordingly. Anyway, eventually we did it, and uh, he came out and walked us around the path. Really. I, was, I think we were there for two and a half hours. And uh, because he had a trouble with his brain, he, he suddenly burst into tears. I mean, it was just, it's just, you know. So we sitting on the bench, both him and I in floods of tears. It was very, very tricky, but he was, he was determined to carry carry on. And he, uh, I've got all the rushes, you know, the original rushes of it. I defy any human to watch it, even if they don't know who he is. Not to weep with tears. Yeah, he was a, uh, it was a, it was a, a tough day, but he, he wanted to do it because he'd kind of asked to do it. Yeah. I'd got, uh, I said to him, come on, it was the, year, the, the Open was at St Andrews and he was going to, I said, come on, Sebi, everyone would like to come. You'd have to play the Champions Challenge thing. And I'd organised with Ernie Els, uh, we'll fly you into Lucas, we'll get a car to pick you up. And uh, as I said it, again he cried he said oh, I, I, you know, I'd love to come but I, the doctors say I can't the doctors say I can't and I could see that looking at his eyes he was, you, know, you imagine him coming out the last mm. yeah no I, I mean of all of you I mean you've played with against Nicholas you've commentated on Woods many many times and and, and playing with and against Seve there, there are some players who are the, the, the greatest for their playing records and some who are a combination of that and charisma and I suppose Palmer would be one and Seve would be right up there at the top. I think Seve was right up there at the top because, I mean, Arnold was unbelievable with people. And I remember the first time I saw him playing in Phoenix, he played in a group in front of me about 78. I thought, they're clapping him down the fair, he's not even doing anything. <laughs> he was just walking down, tipping his hat. But he, he loved it and they loved it. You know, he was doing it just for his benefit as other people. But Palmer did everything just right. Unbelievable. He did everything, everything he said. Whereas Seve had a little bit of element of a rebel in, you know, if that doesn't suit me, I'm not sure that's how I want this thing to happen. And if he got a bit between his teeth, he was as tough as old nails about sorting something out if he had a chip on his shoulder about something. Mm. So he had that kind of cavalier about him as well, which added to the, you know, the excitement of, of his personality. You're not quite sure what was going to go on. And Eddie, I can tell you, he was the best. There was not one person that played with him in a pro and didn't come away and think, this man is the greatest man on earth because he was so keen to help them out with their games. He was amazing. Well, I should probably take a lesson from that. <laughs> Me too. I have, I've got a story. I have actually got a Pro-Am story, and I'll be quick, but I played in the uh, Pro-Am in Prague, Czech Masters, in 2015, and it was the week after the USPGA at Whistling Straits. And I got back, and I was jet-lagged, really quite jet-lagged, to be honest. So I woke up that Wednesday morning really tired, played 18 holes, Listen, I don't chat a load in primes anyway, but this day, admittedly, I didn't speak very much. And my playing partners didn't speak a lot of English, so I thought it was fine. Finished it. Afterwards, Miguel, the uh, tournament director, comes up to me and he said, Eddie, you know, just want to have a word. <laughs> that your playing partners today were a bit disappointed with you and um, said that, you know, you didn't talk very much. You know, what, what happened? And I said to Miguel, well, is this the first time, you know, this has ever happened? He said, well, it, with me? And he said, yeah, it is. I said, well, it must be them then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got out of it. But um, no, you know, it's good to hear Seve was, uh, you know, it's always nice. Yeah. Uh, anyway, listen, um, tell us just quickly, Ken, about working with uh, the boss man himself, Peter Alice, because you've known him for a long, long time. Well, I have, yeah. Both when he used to commentate on me where occasionally the big sabre knife would jab me right in the back. I mean, he, was, he was quite good at handing out the... Uh, this Ken Brown's a bit on the slow side. Uh, but to work with uh, Peter Addis, when you're working with arguably the best sports commentator you know, we've seen in Britain, you know, he's still going strong, pushing 90. And his attributes are, first of all, his voice. You know, his, his, his ability to communicate with the audience. His delivery time and his timing is was just so many times you've had those things. He's not, is he, what's he doing? And he'd have his, uh, and of course, uh, the quality of his broadcasting. I remember one year at the Open, uh, in, those, in, the, in the early days of the Open, he used to get letters. People would write a letter, he'd say, Peter Alice, 
Open Championship, Birkdown, and he'd pitch up. And he had 400 letters. I'm telling you, 400. It was two big stacks of them. And I had one. And it said, Dear Ken, will you pass this on to Peter Ellis? (laughs) 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 But the beauty is he'd he'd answer them if he could. You know, he'd write a letter back or he'd put them. He'd love to get putting them on there. I've got a lovely communication from such and such. And by doing that, he made, if he mentioned a golf club, he made 500 new friends. I mean, there's no more popular broadcaster that we've had. uh, So many laughs. And it's his time. I don't think you and I know. We, we don't, you don't speak over Peter Alice because he's, when he's finished talking, he yeah. stops. And you, you know it's your turn. It's so easy uh, yeah. to, you know, with your over-eagerness to talk over him. A, a, a genius and fingers crossed he goes on for a couple more years. But his leg's a bit dodgy now. It's not so steady on his feet. So it, it's, it's working upstairs but not so well downstairs, if you know what I mean. Mm. Well, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll... He'll appreciate that. Yeah, we'll see you out there again shortly, hopefully. I mean, you do a lot of work on European tour productions as well with the, with the Doogie and Sam Thorns and Mark James, Tony Johnson, many others besides. So uh, yeah. hopefully you'll be back out there soon. Look forward to seeing you, Andrew. Take care, Eddie. Cheers, see, you down the, see you down the road, buddy. Eddie Pepperell. Which one is he again? Oh, Ken. I love Ken. Ken is one of the nicest men I've ever met. You know, Ken wanders along ranges at golf tournaments. He always comes and chats to you. It's interesting he picked up on when he used to commentate uh, the boys and stuff. And I think he's taken that into his tour life because, you know, he often comes and chats to me or or Tom Lewis and a number of guys and just builds a great rapport. And uh, I've got a lot of time for Ken. He also said something else about Ben Hogan when we were talking about um, technique and timing. and, And he talked about control. Uh, and I thought that was quite interesting because I relate it back to myself. That's something that I always focus on. But you look at guys these days like the the route that, or I should say the route that Bryson has taken uh, in terms of choosing power and speed over everything else. Um, it's an interesting thing and, and I it's quite dichotomous really in, in that Francesco Molinari has also taken that route. And I think for some players it can work, but for some it really can't. And uh, I do think the element of control is kind of going out of the game. It's out of fashion, but it's still so important. And you look at the great players, you know, they build they build control. So, um, yeah, that was interesting, I thought. But no, a lot of time for Ken. Yeah, I just liked him talking about his giant inflatable duck. Right, it's time for Eddie Recommends. Yeah, that's quite good if you like that sort of thing. Okay, Eddie, what have you what have you got to recommend? I mean, you've already recommended this uh, indie band, Dire Straits, was it this week? So um, yeah. we'll get into we'll have a, have a listen to them. But what else have you got for us this week? This is a bit left field. I was thinking yesterday, what can I recommend? I'm kind of I've run out of books and TV shows, and you know, and I don't like recommending things like that music because everyone's got their own taste, and I know how it feels when someone recommends something to me, and I often just think I'll oh, go away. So. I was sunbathing yesterday, listening to Dire Straits, and across the courtyard of my garden, I could see the Orange Whip Ball Golf Trainer. I don't know if you've ever seen this, mm-hmm. but I thought to myself, I've used it a lot in the past. You can't hit balls at the moment. What a time to invest in one of these things. It really helps your golf swing. You know, I can guarantee if you swing this thing 100 times a day, you're going to strike the ball better. Um, might not go in the direction you want initially, but your ball striking is going to get a lot better and uh, just really helps the golf swing, I think. So the orange whippy ball, as I call it, yeah. don't think it's quite advertised as that, but um, go and buy one. There's a number of lengths, so you can get one for kids. You know, I think I've got all the lengths, actually. Not, uh, But uh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking up the orange whippy ball golf trainer. Um, see what it's actually called. Orange whip swing trainer. Uh, right. Owned, part owned by Eddie Pepperell. Right, okay, I get it now. No, there we are. The Orange Whip, Orange Whip Swing Trainer Practice Aid. They've got to get a better name. Yeah, the Orange Whippy Ball is probably better. So, yeah. does that just, does that just generate a, a nice bit of lag and timing? Well, see, now this is where it's interesting because I've used it in such a way, and I get a little technical talk here for you, Andrew, which I know you'll love. I'll probably edit it out. But I used to take it up to the top and then really pull my arms down with it. And if I didn't rotate my hips, the ball would hit the floor. So like you imagine Sergio from the top of the swing, he really pulls his arms down, but then he rotates his hips. So like there's this counter, there's this kind of countering of forces. But I've also seen guys use it to help with the width on their downswing. So they try and not lag the the whippy ball. They actually try and create (laughs) width. 
So, um, yeah. Was that Mabel or Oliver? Was that you? That was, yeah, that was all of us. No, no, I do, I do genuinely like that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, tech talk. Tech talk with Eddie Pepperell. If I do edit it, it'll, uh, the edit point will just come in here. Wow, great stuff, Eddie. Thanks about uh, the uh, the orange swing ball trainer. So, um, got a short recommendation from Eddie this week, but we shall move on to um, our favourite game, as the Cardigans once said. I'll tell you what, there aren't many golfers called Alan. So this week on There Aren't Many Golfers Called Alan, we are doing Ken's in honour of the great Ken Brown. Um, Again, just before we do Ken's, Kenneth's, Kenny's, uh, Kensington's, we will just clear up a couple of names because we did Stevens and Steve's. And yes... People now get in touch if we haven't mentioned certain uh, certain golfers and and relating to the names we've done. So Stevens, we missed out. Stephen Dodd, a uh, great Welsh player. Um, I interviewed him a couple of times. And Stephen was not a great talker, but he was a very, very good player for a couple of years. Stephen McAllister won the Atlantic Open, the Dutch Open back in 1990, man of Paisley. Stephen Richardson, we missed out. Uh, won three times in the European Tour but also played at Kew Island in the Ryder Cup and then people are are still listening to uh, older editions of the pod Um, so David Lynn we missed out how could we Lynn Dog Uh, Mm -hmm. David Graham I mean David Graham was a great player the Australian won the PGA US PGA in 79 US Open at uh, Merion in 81 and David Frost the South African who Ken Brown beat by seven shots to win the Southern Open so there we are right Ken's do you want to go first? Probably should, because I think I've got three. Oh. Um, I mean, it is quite a tough one, Ken. So if you can get more than five, you're doing well. Yeah. The uh, first one that came to my mind was Kenneth Ferry. Yes. Um, Kenneth Ferry, who I think now looks more and more like Chris Moyles. Um, well, Chris Moyles has lost a lot of weight, though. Okay. Yeah, no, I think they look I think they look the same now. Um, right, okay. uh, but uh, I really have nothing on Kenneth Ferry other than, you know, Kenneth well, Ferry. Well, he got hot in 2000. Uh, well, I mean, he's he, he won. I think he won three times on tour. But in the 2006 wing, uh, U.S. Open at Winged Foot, which we talk about a great deal, and many people do, he played in the final group in the final round with Mickelson. He was leading. No. Yes, he was in the. Yes, I remember. He, I remember that week. He had a Superman belt on that he wore. <laughs> And every day when he came into the press conference, because he was he was going well throughout, obviously, the American journalists were trying to find this angle, and they had no idea who Kenneth Ferry was. Kenny, Kenny didn't know who Kenneth Ferry was. So they were saying, hey, this Superman belt guy, hey, I don't know where they're from, these, these people. Um, hey, tell us about the Superman belt. And he so he answered one question about the Superman belt. Then another guy goes, I, I'm curious, uh, can you tell me about the Superman belt and the origin of it? Again, now they've drifted up to Canada, these people. And he said, uh, well, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And they said, that answer makes no sense, blah, 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 blah. But he actually did say um, coherent words. Then another guy asked him about the Superman belt, and he said, right, guys, enough about the Superman belt. I'm leading the US Open. And he had a point. So, uh, But he finished, I think he finished fifth or sixth. He shot 76 or so in the final round. But, yeah, so he was playing alongside Mickelson, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know what Kenny's doing now. I think he's back up in the in the northeast. But you know what a what a career he had actually over quite a short period of time. He was right up there. Um, he won the British Boys, the Boys Amateur, uh, in 1996. I was reminded. I looked at some of the results of the Boys Amateur. I did. I couldn't remember that you had lost to Tom Lewis in the final. Um, yeah. St George's 2009. Tell us about that day. Five and four. Well, you know, at least I suppose the only. Did you say Kenneth Ferry won it? Yeah, he won it, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, at least I you know, never wore a Superman belt. No, Spider-Man. Uh, what, what was the score after 18 holes in the final? Tom's my... Oh, um, I think it was like two or three up. Tom was always too good for me. I was never, ever going to beat Tom. Hmm. That's, uh, I don't like that negative thinking. Right, we spent a lot of time in our first, uh, our first Ken, Kenneth Ferry. Uh, I will go from Kenneth Ferry to Kenny Perry. Um Kenny Perry was a very, very good player and very close in a couple of uh, of majors. So he was from Kentucky, loved playing there. So at Valhalla in 96, he lost a sudden death playoff to Mark Brooks in the USPGA, led by one in the last, but bogeyed. Oh. And then, this is a familiar tale, sort of Greg Norman-esque tale, 2009 Masters led by two with two holes to go. At 48 and eight months, he would have become the oldest winner of a major, passing Julius Boros. Uh, but then he, he, he bogeyed the last two and 
and was cabrerad, so Kenny Perry, whose father was also called Ken. So there we are, strong, strong Ken work in the Perry family. Yeah, I remember Kenny. He's, uh, I remember watching that Masters. I seem to remember he hit it long on 17 and had pretty simple chip. Yeah. And he had a really poor chip. And then um, and then it just looked like, yeah, it was it was there for all of us to see, unfortunately. But um, uh, Ken Ken Duke, that was... Uh, Ken <laughs> you Duke love Ken was, Duke. You're slightly obsessed love, with Ken Duke. Yeah, when did I mention him? I mentioned him recently, didn't I? When I was I? talking about the Dukes of Hazard, you said it was written right. by Ken Duke, I think, or he was... Yeah. Well, Ken, I think... Um, Ken Duke... Uh, seemingly, I remember he shot an unbelievable round at Sawgrass a few years ago when it was playing obscenely difficult. I think there was that one year where they let the course go, mm. as that Johnson would say, and he shot a great round. And, 2016. Uh, was that right? Could yeah. That probably sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, so Ken Duke, um, yeah. So I'm going to flesh out the details. He shot 65 during the third round. Jason Day and Russell Knox. Knox said, said they were absolutely flabbergasted. Um, Russell Knox said that's the best round of golf ever probably he said probably at the end I think he just qualified I think Knox got in too deep in that sentence and thought maybe it's not I'll just <laughs> I'll qualify so he said that's the best round of golf ever probably and yeah he, t- he finished tied for third in the players as someone else in this conversation has as well so oh, yeah he had really serious scoliosis as a child, Ken Duke. He wore a brace for two years. Then he had an operation, finally had a metal rod inserted to straighten up his spine. So it's, um, that's pretty impressive. I think Stacey Lewis had similar similar issues on the, on the women's side. Scoliosis. See, now oh, I was about... What's scoliosis, it called? Scoliosis. Scoliosis. Curvature, uh. over-curvature of the, of the spine. See, I was about to say he needs to go on the carnival diet because there's lots of evidence to suggest that people with psoriasis... Mm. And then I realised that's a skin condition and not a spine condition. So, um, yeah. yeah, he's probably not best uh, staying off the bone broth. No, who, who would recommend weird, weird treatments for a condition in this day and age? Um, so, <laughs> Kendrick was from Hope, Arkansas. Which president on that theme is from Hope, Arkansas? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. No, uh, Clinton. Clinton. Oh. Clinton, of the Clinton News Network. Um, of course. He's from Hope, Arkansas. Uh, right. Oh, God, we're running out of... Kenny's running out of time. Running out of the world. Ken Venturi. Ken Venturi. Um, I mean, latterly known, not latterly, he's unfortunately no longer with us, but before latterly, just before latterly, he was uh, very well known as a, a CBS commentator. He was sort of the lead com- uh, colour commentator before Watkins did it for a bit and then Faldo after that. But yeah, with CBS. But he won the 1964 US Open, 14 times a winner on the PJ Tour. Um, he was in Tin Cup as well because they featured him as an actual commentator and uh, Kevin Costner saying, ah, Venturi up in the booth, what does he know, that sort of thing. But as an amateur, he led the Masters by four shots going into the final round as an amateur and, uh, and shot 80. Still led by four with nine holes to play. Came back in, in, in 42. Jackie Burke, uh, I think it was ni- uh, 56, 57, 56, came back in 42. Jackie Burke Jr. came from eight shots behind to win. And when he won the US Open, he nearly collapsed on the final day. I mean, I mean, not collapsed in his play, literally collapsed with heat exhaustion. It was 36 holes on, on the final day, which was the Saturday, 100 degrees at Congressional. Doctors said, withdraw, do not go out after the third round because he was struggling so much. But he went out. He says he can't remember anything of that final round. Uh, and yeah, but he won 1964 US Open. Ken Venturi. Wow, wow. I heard his brother's quite a good player as well, Ace. Um, I knew there was a Ken. There was a Ken that I was trying not to Google, and I was thinking, there's a there's a really famous Ken with a cool surname that just wasn't coming to me, and I mm. hadn't seen it until you just mentioned it. So, mm. uh, well, I'm all out of Kens from golf golfers, but uh, there is Ken Conboy who caddies for um, Graham McDowell, and uh, one of Ken Conboy's good friends actually uh, came around our house when we first bought it and uh, helped design. He works for Sharps, and he designed uh, a little um, walk-in wardrobe area. So, uh, you know, thanks to Ken Conboy for that, really. Got us a good deal at Sharps. I'm just Googling Sharps. Sharps, co-owned by Eddie Pepperell, is... uh, Okay, Uh, okay, you're out of them. So, Ken Bowsfield. Peter Alice always goes on about Ken Bowsfield. And again, so, you know, we're going back to the 50s. He was one of Britain's very best golfers, but he played in six Ryder Cups. Yorkshireman, 18 professional wins, won the PGA Championship in 1955. Ken Bowsfield. So, uh, here we are. And uh, I've got another one. Kenny G. Kenny G. Oh. Um, he is a golfer. I mean, he's more often yeah. known as the sort of 
hotel foy music specialist and yeah sax see God. now before this podcast again i was thinking there's another kenny who who plays in these pro-ams and i googled kenny rogers but it was oh, kenny tennis. g tennis was kenny rogers thing um again sadly oh, recently departed oh. i loved tennis oh. um kenny g so yeah he plays the pebble beach pro-am every year yeah. um he played off, apparently played off plus one. Now, American handicaps can sometimes be a little bit flexible and generous, but but he was the club champion at Sherwood Country Club in California, which is yeah. you know, just out in the Santa Monica Hills, just outside Los Angeles. And, and you look at the members list of Sherwood Country Club in California. I don't know if they're good players, but it's a who is who of, of just that'll everybody. Be, that'll be you soon. Honestly, the way you're going, the new book that's coming out, um, I think Keep that under you're going to be invited over there by Julia Roberts, Michael Douglas. They're, you're going to be playing with them all. Um, mm-hmm. Can I be Julia a plus Roberts. one? Julia, Julia Roberts. Roberts. I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy going, who is this guy? What's, why has he got his dogs with him? Uh, Kenny G. So Kenny G played at the wedding of Sergio Garcia and Angela before they did the cross-dressing dancing thing. He was there playing at their wedding. So, yes... Ken Kershaw uh, was a very good golfer, played Cliff Barnes in Dallas. I don't know if he was. And Ken Hom, Ken Hom's Walk Cookery book is well used in our house. So there we are, Kens. There, there aren't many golfers called Alan, and actually there aren't many golfers called Ken or Kenny. Ken Brown's still the king, though. Yeah, it's not too bad. So there we are. Uh, time for us to leave you now. Again, I, I say this with all seriousness. Thank you for listening. I'm getting lots of uh, downloads and pushing that Peter Crouch podcast as hard as we can in the charts. Um, but we do it for you guys because we just care so much. We're up to 100 countries listening. I was going to give a special prize to the 100th country, but I can't. it doesn't come in in which order they have joined us. So I can't quite work out which one it is, but I think it might be the Falkland Islands where they've started listening. So a big shout out to Port Stanley. Um, South Georgia have not started listening though uh, Penguins there So I, again I was looking up golf on the Falkland Islands There is Stanley Golf Club in the capital or the main town The course is 18 holes This is my kind of course 18 holes long and 4,700 yards in length oh. mm. Yeah, That's the way it should be Like Fullerton in Trun But it also says many farmers in both East and West Falkland Also have their own courses Port Howard Golf Course, I think, is supposed to be one. There was a review on TripAdvisor, oh, Eddie and TripAdvisor, which says, Port Howard offers one of the best golf courses in the islands. The nine green, stroke 18 tees, Clippy Hill Golf Course, Clippy Hill Course, offers a challenge to golfers of all standards. Mm. With no queues and just handfuls of people on the course at any one time, while in beautiful surroundings, this is the perfect way to relax. Final killer sentence here, professional golfer Bernard Gallagher played the Clippy Hill Course in 1989. Is that, I mean, can that in any way be true? Did Bernard Gallagher go to the Falkland Islands in 1989? I then then wrestled Jeff Overton's dad to the ground. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to have to investigate that to see if Bernard Gallagher did actually play the Clippy Hill course in the Falkland Islands in 1989. It does sound lovely, doesn't it? Was it four and a half thousand yards, Clippy Hill? You can warm up with the whippy ball. Stop pushing it. Leave the the Clippy, the whippy orange ball. Uh, the reviews um, keep coming in, Eddie, as well. So, um, yeah. and, and again, they're overwhelmingly positive, except for the ones who want me to go on holiday. But um, yeah, Golf Junkie One uh, picked up. He said five stars, which is always great. Uh, it's all right, but Andrew makes it too PC. Try and take your BBC hat off and let Eddie off the leash. I, I, I've been picking up on this sentiment. I think it's growing, um, much like the uh, you know anti-lockdown sentiment that's growing as well. But um, I would say to what was his name? Sorry, his, his golf junkie. Golf junkie. He loves his golf. He is mainlining golf and uh, selling off family heirlooms to pay for his golf. So uh, <laughs> I would say that if I if we let you off the leash, we uh, I can't afford any legal actions at this point <laughs> in my life, and some of them would I think lead to that and would be thrown off the the hosting platforms as well um here's another one here's a good review uh, the problem I have and this is exactly what would happen I would say something mm. and then I'd wind up in court mm. and I would defend myself because I'm an idiot and I would just say to the judge how have we got here you know like how is that a problem and, and then I would be done and we'd be done so yeah. yeah I'm all for what you're doing yeah, exactly. Uh, top pod, five stars from Mr. Jupiter 99. Is it me or does Eddie sound a little bit like Ricky Gervais? I mean, this has been remarked on before. You Do, do, you, do you think you sound a little bit like Great Well, 
he's from Reading, you know, and I'm from Oxford way. Mm. So not far, but uh, there's an important distinction there. You know, he's from Whitley Wood and I'm from uh, Abingdon on Thames. But uh, no, you know, listen, if you're compared to Ricky Gervais in any way, shape or form, other than when he's in the bath, um, then, yeah. um, what a, you know, what, a, what, a, what an honour. Yeah, I would say golfer first, probably entertainer second. Uh, get the guitar. Have you got a guitar? I'm sure I've heard a guitar I, in the background. I actually have two guitars. Uh, one's an electric guitar, which I've never plugged in or played. Just, you know, got it because I thought it'd be cool. And now it just stands in our front room. Uh, but, but I did try to learn the guitar and then Gus came along. And that was the last day I ever played was when Gus came three years ago. So, right. um, But the thing with me is I'm really, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm undextrous. You know, so like I have, I have fingers that just and wrists that can't move. I have fat wrists and f- chubby little fingers and they can't move very well. And I look at people playing the guitar and I think, oh my God, look how flexible their fingers are. Mm. And um, I just, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm pathetic really. Yeah, do you know who has chubby fingers though? And it didn't ha- harm his musical career, Elton John. So if Elton, mm. chubby fingered John can, can do it. Have you seen then, his film? I have seen, I have seen his film, yes. Did you see? I thought it was pretty good, but then I watched the um, one of Queen, and I thought, "Oh my God, Bohemian Rhapsody!" That was just that knocked Elton's into a tin hat for me. Yeah, but the common thread between those two films is that they're both produced by the artists themselves. So I think David Furnish might have been an executive producer, and Elton John, the John one, and then Queen were ex- executive producers of the Queen one. So they're not going to be warts and all, though. I think they both lacked a little bit of a, you know, a darkness to them, which both those mm. artists uh, have had. So I think they could have both benefited from a bit of that. We need a we need a George Michael film that would top it off for me, because he's you know, if I had to rank those three, to me, George, ooh, George or Elton. I was never into Queen very much, but George or Elton, that's a tough one. Love them both. We're getting more and more partridge by the moment. If I had to rank those three, I'd say John, Queen, Michael. Uh, and then that's it. Right, okay. So next week, your task, Eddie, is to play us a little tune. Uh, just one little tune for a sting, which we can use as a bed going forward in the podcast. Just anything on the guitar. That's your task for this week. You've got a week to learn even a three-chord strum. That's all you have to do. Can you do that for us, Eddie? Oh, I look forward to it. That's given me something to look forward to and burst into this week with such we look forward to it Uh, we've all got to have targets and we will see you next week bye 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 now bye now